I'm Jack Samlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. In today's program, we share some perspective on the evolving landscape of ag equipment automation and look at what the near and long-term future holds for companies looking to commercialize these technologies. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know, and we'll make every effort to get it listed here as well. And a reminder that by subscribing, that allows you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series, Agronomy Matters, and TopCon Agriculture Application Solutions Make It Work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, advanced technologies are reshaping the farming industry, and in many respects, it's a race among manufacturers, developers, and engineers to refine the performance of the next generation tools to be field ready. So who is leading the pack, and how close are we to having some of the more futuristic technologies become reality? At the 2019 Agricultural Equipment Technology Conference in Louisville, I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Alex Thomason, professor with the Department of Biological and Agricultural Engineering with Texas A&M, to evaluate the current and future landscape of precision technology. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Topcon Agriculture, we share excerpts from my conversation with Alex on which equipment manufacturers are ahead of the innovation game, some of the existing obstacles to advancing autonomous vehicles, and the key role broadband expansion will play in rural availability of telematic connections. Alex, thrilled to, to have an opportunity here to sit down with you. I really appreciate the time. and. I know you're involved in some of the more fascinating elements here of what we're seeing uh, on the precision egg front and in terms of some of the developments that are you know really not too distant uh, in the future so maybe just to start out if, if we could have you just give a little bit of an introduction uh, you know your background and, and kind of uh, what you're involved in currently with Texas A&M. I graduated from college in 1987 went and worked on a master's degree in uh, remote sensing at LSU and um, had no background in remote sensing when I started, but uh, you know, began to learn about image analysis and optics and that type of thing and how things vary on the ground and how you measure those from above. Really was looking at forestry at that point, uh, but began to be very interested in optics and optoelectronic sensing and that type of thing. Went to work for USDA ARS in 1989 at a cotton ginning research laboratory in Stoneville, Mississippi. Uh, my main focus there was on measurement of cotton, cotton fiber quality as it's going through the gin and how do you use that to optimize the process of ginning, you know, whether certain machines are in play or not in play during the process. Did that for eight years. Uh, during the course of that eight year span, I went to University of Kentucky, took courses uh, towards my PhD, uh, did my work under Scott Shearer. 
since I was at that time still working for USDA, I did my research on a cotton focus, which is a bit unusual to Kentucky. Um, but they had a good program in, in uh, sensing and imaging, and, and it was a good fit for what I was trying to do. Ultimately, my dissertation was on using image analysis for cotton quality measurement. Um, I wrapped up my dissertation, uh, finished that job in 97, and went to work for Mississippi State University. They basically brought me in. That was, if you could say there was a peak in interest in precision agriculture in the early days, I would say that was about the right time. And they brought me in at that time, they had some funding for Precision Ag, and they said, we want you to be our Precision Ag engineer in Mississippi State. And so I was there seven and a half years, and most of that time, that's what I did. I worked on uh, sensors for uh, harvesting, for real-time fertilization, you know, for example, a sensor that we developed or a sensor suite that we developed was looking at the estimation of the nitrogen deficiency or non-deficiency of cotton plants in the field. And so we could drive a spray tractor over them for foliar nitrogen and do that in real time. At least that was the goal. The sensor worked quite well. We didn't take it to the level of actually doing the real-time spraying, um, but did a lot of remote sensing in there. We had a project with NASA and we're looking at a remote sensing of fields and so I've had a, a bit of uh, proximal sensing and remote sensing mixed back and forth along the years. In uh, 2005 I went to work at Texas A&M and so I've been there 14 years. I've uh, had a mix of things going on there. The last few years it's really been uh, probably 50 percent phenotyping which is sort of this new idea of working with predominantly breeders uh, to help them understand what are the, you know, the how to rank their their genotypes and how to select the best varieties based on our ability to measure the plant height, the uh, plant vigor with respect to drought and other things. Uh, so use a lot of remote sensing, proximal sensing techniques to do those things. And my ultimate goal is to transition those techniques that we're developing into production agriculture so that growers can benefit from them. That's really my, my goal from now until I retire. So a pretty diverse career to this point. Yeah, yeah somewhat. <laughs> somewhat. Not kind of all focused on, on sensing, sensing and automation, mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. type of thing. Right, right. Well, and, and those are obviously two fields that, I mean, we've seen tremendous uh, progression here you know, right. in, in recent years and, and a lot more to come, obviously, with uh, when you're talking about the commercialization of some of those. So. What do you see, I mean, as some of those uh, recent developments that um, are, are getting close and, and what can we expect, you know, from your standpoint on the progression of, of some of those technologies? Yeah, great question. Um, and I, if you don't mind if I digress a little bit. And not at all. I had a call from a guy, this has probably been about four years ago, who developed this new sort of publication called the Robot Report. And he was asking me about what was going on in robotics and agriculture and automation. And at the end, of the, we had a really great conversation. At the end of the conversation, he said, so what's your prediction? How long do you think it's going to be before we've got roboticized or autonomous uh, agriculture? And I said, well, if you mean that we've got uh, common, fully autonomous tractors and harvesters in the field, I said, 25 years. And I thought he was going to hang up on me. 
<laughs> that was really not the answer he was expecting or wanted to hear, I don't think. I think he was expecting to say five years, something like that. So we're four years on from that conversation, and we're a little, we're a step closer than we were four years ago, but I think we're still a good ways away from seeing a predominance of autonomous vehicles in agriculture. You're, get, you're beginning to see some bits and pieces here and there. Swarm Farm in Australia is an example. Uh, there's another company in Canada whose name, Uline, I believe, I can't remember the name of the company right off the bat, but, but they're beginning to do this type of thing. But it's all very uh, carefully done. Uh, for example, the Swarm Farm system is not one that you can buy. It's basically one that I, I believe you pay a contractual fee and the company does the service for you with their machines. Uh, so we've got a ways to go on this, uh, but I think the technology is largely there. Uh, to do fully autonomous, and, and the real issues are, uh, I think, predominantly liability concerns. At what point do the companies become comfortable that they can put these machines in the field and they can handle the liability associated with that? And I think we're really waiting on the autonomous road vehicle industry, cars and trucks and things like that, to sort of set the stage. And they're getting closer. I think. You know, there are some fielded units out there for practice, and over the next few years we'll begin to see that grow. Mm -hmm. But I still think my original 25-year guesstimate wasn't a bad one. I think we're at more than 10 years away from seeing a predominance of those machines out there. Mm -hmm. uh, what technologies are, are coming online? You know, I think more and more the precision ag type of technologies, we're going to see those. Uh, John Deere, uh, Case New Holland, uh, Kloss are leading in various areas of those. I think, you know, Agco is, is picking up here and there. Uh, I think Kubota's got a really strong interest. They've not shown a lot of uh, advancement, but everybody's sort of uh, playing it close to the vest, right? They're not uh, telling much about what they want to do. I know that Kubota's got interest where they are and exactly what direction they're going is a bit of a question. And you mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, you know, you hear companies, uh, you know, in, in their investment and certainly, you know, some of the companies that you mentioned have, um, you know, been more visible with their developments, you mm -hmm. know, obviously Case debuting their conceptual autonomous vehicle mm -hmm. a few years ago, um, uh, Class obviously uh, with, with the, what they've developed. Um, when you kind of try to look at the landscape, um, you know, obviously we talk about kind of the major manufacturers and, and what their role is going to be. There's also uh, a number, you know, of smaller, whether it's startups or even, you know, non-egg companies that are really starting to kind of get into this area. What piece of the puzzle do you see them fitting? What role ultimately, or maybe currently, but then ultimately, you know, are, are they going to kind of shape this evolution? You're thinking of implements here. Yes. Uh, so, the, you know, the implements, to a large extent, are sort of in production where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. And I think the movement that we'll see is just to become more and more precise. We've got as much, frankly, as much positioning measurement capability as we'll ever need uh, with the level of GPS that we have now. Uh, we've now got to the point where we can potentially have singulated seed placement. We can potentially come back and visit an individual plant in the field because we know exactly where we put the seed. Uh, if we did things like uh, splitting up a field into different genotypes, different seed varieties, um, you know, it, it would be really easy to go back and treat those differently. 
so I think the, um, the precision, the level of precision in terms of all our applications of you know, fertilizer and harvest aid chemical in the case of cotton and that type of thing are going to become more and more precise and more and more uh, real time. Uh, an example that I've been working on is uh, using, th this is a research project that I've had ongoing for several years where we're using drones to identify the location of a pretty serious disease in cotton called cotton root rot. Uh, th basically the, the disease is a soil-borne fungus that exists year after year in the same field and it exists in the same place in the field year after year. So if you're able to identify it with remote sensing, uh, potentially at, at a very fine level, say meter by meter, mm -hmm. you, can, you can use a map that's based on your remote sensing data to go in and apply fungicide during planting at that kind of resolution. Uh, so I really think that uh, you know, in terms of planting and application of all our chemicals and so forth, we're going to be getting finer and finer resolution um, and, and that's, that's where I see things going. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. And welcome in Dr. Ray Acevedo, former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for TopCon Agriculture. In this week's technology tips from Dr. Ray, he discusses one of the challenges associated with optical sensor adoption, that being a unified platform for processing and analysis of collected data. If we look back, you know, 10 years ago when the Green Seeker first came out, TopCon Prospect, there was no cloud or machine-to-machine -machine connectivity. That just didn't happen. Matter of fact, to this day, I'm sure many of you can raise your hand and say I've had plenty of connectivity issues using Verizon, U.S. Cellular, or whoever you have. That still continues to be a struggle. So what does this do? This limits the scalability of sensor technologies and the value they can bring to your farm. If it's difficult for you to access that data and the direct output it gives you, that nitrogen recommendation, if it's a royal pain for you to get to it, like it was 10 years ago, odds are you're not going to waste your time with it, and neither would I. And one of the things is, is that's why this has been an issue besides just connectivity, is that we're lacking a unifying platform. When I start to look at, I have my various soil sensing data, and then I got my drone imagery, and then I got my active optical sensor data from Crossfax, I would have to put that together all by myself. And I would have to use multiple different types of programs to make this, these different data layers work together. That was a substantial amount of time investment and then also required a lot of expertise to make that happen. I'm sure, like most of you out there, you're not going to be a specialist in everything and neither am I. Some of us are a specialist in GIS type work doing that kind of computing and some of us are not. Well, thank you, Ray, for your insight and to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Dr. Alex Thomason on the difference between machine communication and machine collaboration. One of the interesting things that you brought up during your, your session was kind of looking at uh, machine communication versus machine mm. collaboration mm. and that there's a distinct difference there. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where we are with each of those areas and, and I mean, uh, in terms of the development, what's, what's left to be done? 
Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so let me start with communication. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to completely separate collaboration and communication, but one of the principal issues of communication that I was talking about was telematics, and that's where the various machines are uh, communicating data wirelessly to the cloud or to uh, uh, office computer, or but they're taking it off of the machine and sending the data somewhere else. Uh, we're, I think, reasonably far along, particularly uh, Deere and, and Case and even, even Kloss have telematic systems. Some of the other manufacturers have telematic systems as well. Um, cloud support services on, on the John Deere system, which is the one I'm most familiar with, are really quite good. I think the real difficulty that we've got is uh, the infrastructure is not there to support uh, real-time and rapid communication of large data sets at this point. So if you're on a farm that's within reasonable distance of a highway or a city, there's a good chance that you've got a cellular network that will support your real-time data uploading. But many of our farms aren't, don't have that situation. Uh, recently, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has been interested and is beginning to support uh, the growth of broadband into rural areas in the U.S., which I think is a great thing. Um, my sense, though, is that they're predominantly thinking about rural businesses and residences, and they're not considering the, the field level, uh, broad scale availability of, of broadband wireless. So I think we've got to ultimately come up with different infrastructure solutions. I mean, to be honest with you, it's probably too expensive to ever have 5G coverage everywhere in the country. Uh, but there are ways, I think, that we can develop systems that are point-to-point, -point, uh, that are roving systems on some of these machines. And I think that that's some of the technology that we're going to see develop over the next five to ten years. That technology is the kind of thing that we sort of already know how to do. We just haven't figured out exactly what the use case is and how to make it work in a um, in an affordable way. But I think that'll be coming online in the next few years. So communication involves the telematics aspect. I included in my presentation something about the, the implement to machine uh, communication aspect as well. You know, we've got CAN bus. I think. Uh, CANBUS is, is very standardized at this point. Uh, we've got AEF that's doing these confirmation tests, uh, which I think is great. You know, ultimately, the small end manufacturers have the capability to go in and get their products tested and make sure they're viable for communicating with other, other machines. So I think we're, we're pretty good in that sense. Uh, the, the collaboration issue, where I talk about collaboration, is when we have multiple vehicles in the field that have to not only communicate, but coordinate their operations with one another. Uh, the first step that I'm seeing in that is the so-called leader-follower technologies, where we have two machines that have to work in coordination with one another, for example, in, in harvesting in a transport vehicle like a grain cart that's supporting the combine. There are already solutions that allow sort of semi-autonomous operation, uh, you know, Kinsey is probably mm -hmm. at the forefront of that. We've got some of the larger manufacturers that are supporting some of those things as well. Um, but those r still require a good bit of operator involvement. And I think the next step, and one of the things that I showed in my presentation yesterday, 
uh, that one of my graduate students has been working on. And to be honest, I don't do a whole lot of work in grains, but this was an interesting project that my student was interested in. And he's looking at how do you automate the entire process of going from the, uh, from the combine to the grain truck and back and finding you know, what driving area is available, uh, being able to identify obstacles. Those are tremendous problems that are being worked out somewhat in the automotive industry with cars driving down the roads and seeing dynamic obstacle movement and those things have to be worked out in agriculture as well but we've got a good starting point. I mean obviously when we're talking about shorter term and, and you kind of threw out you know that that 25 year mm -hmm. uh, projection or, or you know forecast there about when we're going to see uh, you know kind of the fully autonomous tractor out in the field um, you know there's obviously steps that are going to be leading up to that mm -hmm. um, so you know in, I guess in, in shorter term or kind of you know maybe a few years at a time what, what do you see as maybe the steps we need to take or the industry needs to take to get there? And, and I mean, there, there's obviously going to be hurdles and there are hurdles, you know, to getting there, but is, is that achievable? I do believe it's achievable. I do believe we'll see it, hopefully, while I'm still uh, <laughs> living. Um, yeah, I, I think we're going to have a progression. So one of the interesting things to me is if you look at precision agriculture, uh, technological capabilities and research over the years. We've had a lot of capabilities for 15 to 20 years mm -hmm. that have not really been adopted very well. Uh, the things that have been adopted are things like auto steer, auto guidance, uh, pretty obvious return on investment there and that's really the issue. Is there return on investment on these technologies so that they'll be adopted? And I think there is a bit different, a, a bit of a difference of opinion among some academic types. Some would say, well, look, we, our job is to develop these new technologies and show what's possible, and the industry will pick it up at some point. I have a slightly different view. I think there, some of the research that we do needs to involve on focusing on what the return on investment is, because in some cases, I believe that the return on investment is there for really high precision, but it's, it's completely not obvious because it's a, very, um, it's, it's, it's a very complicated system. There are a lot of variables there, and it's really difficult for anybody just to look at that and say, you know, that's great technology, but I don't know how to use it. That's one of the things that we saw early on with yield monitoring, mm -hmm. for example. We produced a lot of beautiful maps. How you went about using it was a bit different question. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that's one of the principal requirements as we go along is for us to try to as best we can demonstrate the return on investment of these technologies. But we're beginning to see some of these technologies take off in basically what I would call uh, semi-autonomous systems. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned the, uh, the work that's been done in leader follower technology. I think that's an indication that we're moving that direction. I think we'll see that step by step uh, that some of the very common highly uh, labor-intensive uh, requirements are going to be automated step-by-step step as it makes sense. Another example is so-called headland management where you know in a planting operation is a good example the the operator is doing most of their work right at the edge of the field where they're having to turn and do multiple operations with the tractor and the implement and those have begun to be uh, automated. Mm -hmm. And I think we're gonna continue to see steps like that. Every place that there is a labor-intensive exercise that can be automated, it will be automated to the point that the next step, which may be 15 years down the road, 
it's just moving to that fully automated system, potentially relieving the operator from being on the machine, uh, possibly in an office overseeing multiple machines. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Alex, for your perspective and research into forthcoming precision technologies. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptill, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series, and a reminder that you can check out striptillfarmer.com slash NSTC for recent news and updates on our annual National Strip Tillage Conference. For Dr. Alex Thomason, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here with Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>